Hello and welcome to the first episode of Interregnum, a new fortnightly show where author Richard Seymour will be talking with me about everything from the cruelties of self-help culture to the climate emergency and from psychoanalysis to the state of the Labour Party. Today's episode is in fact the second we've recorded, but given the awful events in Ukraine and given that Richard is currently writing about the Russian invasion of the country, it seemed like a good idea to get his thoughts. We talked about the objectives of the Russian invasion, what Vladimir Putin's broader geostrategic goals are, and we discussed his extraordinary claim that the invasion is in part aimed at the denazification of Ukraine. Finally, we talked about the risk of direct Western military intervention. We spoke to each other on Thursday afternoon, and obviously the situation is very fast-moving, and that was before Russian troops had entered Kiev, and before some of the larger anti-war protests had taken place in Russia. I began the interview by asking Richard if he was surprised by the scale of the Russian invasion. I am surprised because what appears to be happening is considerably more ambitious than just essentially annexing Donetsk and Luhansk. It really looks like this is uh, an attempt to comprehensively deal with Ukraine. I'm not clear that the objective is to annex Ukraine in total, but it is to certainly use the military to essentially destroy Ukraine's autonomy and certainly prevent it from drifting any further into the orbit of NATO. The reports of explosions in Kiev are congruent with um, earlier reports that the majority of the forces that were gathering on Ukraine's border, which is about three quarters of the total Russian armed forces, were not aimed at Donetsk and Luhansk, but actually, because why would they need to uh, have so many forces when those provinces are already basically under Russian control? They're aimed at uh, cities like Odessa and Kiev. So, This is quite an ambitious move, Um, and to my mind, although a certain geopolitical sense can be made of it, in order to make sense of it, you have to enter into some quite paranoid predicates. You have to enter into a worldview that is in some ways quite simple-minded, in other ways quite cynical, and in other ways uh, quite embattled. Could you expand on on that last point? Yeah, um, so I think Greg Uden has written some persuasive analyses. Uh, He's a Russian leftist intellectual based in uh, uh, Russian academia and uh, has written a couple of persuasive analyses for open democracy. And essentially he argues that what Putin is trying to do is to stave off the collapse of his organization of political power domestically. And that he must be doing this, since it's not something he's just doing by himself, he must be doing this in agreement with the especially the military leadership, but more broadly the state apparatus, uh, which has been expanded significantly under Putin, and that basically this reflects the way in which they view a patterning of events, an underlying coherence to events, where on the one hand the drift of Ukraine, the deterioration of Ukraine from their perspective, uh, as it drifts into the NATO and European orbit, And on the other hand, the growth of protest movements within Russia, the resilience of the Navalny-led protest movements. Um, I'm not going to be cheerleading for Navalny, by the way. He's an opportunist, but these are serious movements, and they have been quite resilient despite severe repression. Uh, Not to mention, of course, the attempted poisoning to death by uh, Novichok of Navalny. 
there's a danger that the political system that they've developed, which is basically organized around the active depoliticization of the masses, is going to collapse. And they regard these things as being uh, related, as uh, having an underlying coherence driven by their political enemies in the West. Now, underlying that is a basic, basically a cynical perspective on capitalism and power, which is described by one of Putin's former aides, Gleb Pavlovsky, an interview that I think was initially done for The Guardian, but was never published until the New Left Review picked it up. And Pavlovsky describes how essentially Putin's worldview is that Russia's big mistake was to try and build this fair society in which everyone is equal and never really used its power to build up real capitalist predators who could eat their predators alive. Putin's view is that capitalism is not intrinsically a problem, but you just have to internalize the cynical perspective of the West as he sees it. So when he thinks about Western states, he doesn't take very seriously their claim to represent democracy, human rights, and all of that sort of stuff. And from a certain point of view, you could say, well, why should he? Mm. Um, I mean, he, he regards Western democracy as sort of a, a sham. You have two parties who who switch switch over to power. And, and that was apparently uh, one of his ambitions for Russia was actually to affect this kind of phony uh, democratic system where there was an appearance of democracy, if, if not the reality. Absolutely. Absolutely. So from that point of view, the critique of Putin's policies from Western states it's a bit like, uh, as he once joked, you know, the, the appearance of Comrade Fox. You know, there's this old Russian joke where Rabinovich is walking through the woods, um, carrying a sheep. He falls into a hole and they're next uh, joined by a wolf who falls into the hole and the sheep starts bleating. And Rabinovich says, what are you bleating about? What's going on? And he says, uh, Comrade Wolf knows whom to eat. Um, and the point is uh, that, uh, you know, if, if you are a sheep, you're always going to get eaten by Comrade Wolf. And so that's, uh, you know, basically uh, Putin's view is uh, Russia is not going to be a sheep. Now, that is barely even an ideology. It's regarded as a basic common sense. You know, Russia has to defend its territorial integrity, its centralized unity, and it has to be respected on an international stage. And that requires doing some pretty bloody things. But that's the, that's the underlying perspective. So there's the ideology which uh, isn't even recognized as such, which is just taken for granted. There is a certain sort of capitalist, hard-headed cynicism of the kind which you could imagine Trump admiring, but which, by the way, was welcomed by Clinton, Blair, and then Bush uh, when Putin first won power. Indeed, uh, when Putin waged war on Chechnya, Clinton wrote an article saluting the liberation of Grozny. Yeah, I, so I remember the, comments from Tony Blair as well, where he defended Russia by saying, it's important to remember that Chechnya is not Kosovo. Yeah, which is ironic now, because I think it's very clear that Russia wants Ukraine, and particularly the east of Ukraine, um, Donetsk and Luhansk, to be treated as a kind of Kosovo, you know? I mean, his, his justifications have almost been witty, you know, referencing humanitarian intervention. But uh, at the same time, having just about as much substance and justification as those used in the deployment of military force in Yugoslavia in 1999. 
If, as you say, this is part of an effort to shore up support for Putin within Russia, do you think he's miscalculated? I mean, from the reports I've read, I mean, it seems there's very little enthusiasm for the war in, in, in Russia, even if, you know, the levels of protest don't appear to be particularly large and, you know, for good reason, given the nature of the Russian security services. Yeah, it's it's very hard to say because the pattern has been that every time Russia does uh, engage in some sort of military aggrandizement, Putin's support recovers substantially. So um, the polls, of course, don't really give us the whole story, um, and they can be quite misleading. But, uh, the, you know, generally speaking, uh, Putin's support has never fallen below 60%, as far as I can tell. Uh, now, that's probably a significant overstatement of his real level of support. Nonetheless, when it has fallen below 60%, that's usually been regarded uh, uh, in the leadership as uh, a serious crisis because it means that uh, you can start to see the super majority built around this highly personalized presidential system starting to peel off and you can see influential layers of people and maybe some oligarchs start to peel off and you know this was one of the reasons why Putin was concerned about Medvedev and so on okay so as I say, at every step where there has been uh, a military aggrandizement, whether it's in Georgia, where essentially Russia was provoked into a war that it won and subsequently declared that it recognized the autonomy of South Ossetia and Abkhazia, just as it has done with Donetsk and Luhansk, Putin's ratings improved substantially. When Crimea was annexed, Putin's ratings went sky high well over 85% or something. So there is a sense in which, although there, there hasn't been a will to believe that Putin is going to go to war, there's a sense in which a lot of people will just default to believing whatever the justifications are. It's not that the majority of Russians believe that Ukraine doesn't exist, which is what essentially Putin believes. But Putin has been laying the ideological groundwork for this. I mean, he's been speaking and writing for some time on the, the historical unity of Ukraine and Russia, of the mistake that it was for Ukraine to be given independence uh, within the Soviet system. And then, of course, he made his big speech talking about what real decommunization would look like. And this is a, a really pointed irony, because, as you know, Ukrainian nationalists uh, have pivoted their position on a rejection of the communist uh, legacy. And Putin's pointed irony was, if you, if you really want to get over communism, then we're going to take Ukraine back. You'll see what decommunization is. So uh, th this, this, I think, might appeal to the sense of global dignity and power that many people in Russia feel they want. It might also appeal to a certain underlying sense of chauvinism. I'm not saying that the majority of Russians are great power chauvinists, but there is certainly a significant uh, layer of people who adhere to those kinds of views, and it can be quite mobilizing. So... In some ways, this gives direction and motivation and force to Russian state power at a point where it has been a bit aimless and where it has been losing ground. Bear in mind that although Putin has had some foreign policy successes, and although he's built a, a regime that was uh, certainly more stable than uh, w what preceded it mm. under Yeltsin... Well, that's not saying very much, I suppose. <laughs> 
Yes, clearly. Um, but even in this context, uh, you know, Putin has been losing ground in other ways. I mean, NATO membership has doubled under his uh, leadership. And he hasn't really been able to do anything about that. He has reasserted Russian influence and power within Central Asia and in Eastern Europe to some extent. But uh, this has been nothing compared to the expansion of NATO. I should say on that note, uh, this uh, gripe that Russia has about NATO expansion, it's not baseless. I mean, I don't entirely agree with those who say that the war is all about that. Uh, it's just that any country of Russia's nature, with the history that it has, would regard NATO's expansion as a threat and would do what it could to stop it. But that's another way in which you can say that Putin's action is actually quite deranged. Because what's going to happen here? You can already see opinion shifting in a number of non-NATO countries. So, for example, Scotland is ruled by the SNP. The SNP is nominally critical of NATO. You can see it swinging pretty hard behind uh, the sort of NATO position. Finland is um, and Sweden, uh, both are non-NATO members of Europe. Mm. Um, there's on the talk border. of that changing, of course. Yeah, there is talk of that changing. And then all you would need is for Ireland, Malta, and a few other non-NATO countries to start switching. And that obviously depends to, in part upon how terrible Russia's actions are. It also depends in part upon how naive and simple-minded our propaganda becomes, which is something to worry about, um, particularly given the uh, sort of witch-hunting of Stop the War led by Sir Keir Starmer. Um, it may become impossible to have a serious discussion in this country. So this is an extremely dangerous situation on various fronts, but one of the ways in which Putin's policy can be regarded as a demented is that it's counterproductive even from the point of view of its own apparent rationality in that the most likely effect is that it will strengthen NATO and it will certainly strengthen support for NATO within Ukraine and if Putin thinks that doesn't matter because he's going to solve the problem militarily well we've been there before I mean Ukraine is not Afghanistan but it could become a quagmire uh, it could become a bloody civil war and if Putin doesn't uh, descend into that level of uh, bloody chaos, which, of course, he has experience in, then, you know, there's every chance that the majority, uh, a pro-NATO majority, will emerge in a, a, a beaten and bloodied Ukraine. And a lot of other countries will start to reconfigure their sense of the security priorities in light of what Putin is doing. So it's crazy on all sorts of indices. Do you think it's possible that China changes the calculus in, in Putin's mind? Because we've seen increasing closeness in, in ties between China, China and Russia. The operation that Russia is currently conducting is partly possible by the fact of Russia being able to withdraw troops from uh, the Chinese border, knowing that nothing will happen. Of course, historically, that border has you know, been very fractious and, the, and Russia and China fought over the, over the border. Is it possible that Russia feels it makes more sense to do this because it's it's hitched its wagon to some extent to what it sees as, as a rising power? And of course, China is also uh, going through a process of deteriorating relations with the West, even if China does not necessarily welcome this situation, which I think seems to be the case. Yeah, I can imagine that the relative peace between Russia and China and the fact that China doesn't particularly want a rivalry with Russia 
could, could be enabling for the Russian state. But to be honest, I don't really think that China has that much to do with it in the sense that you know, in the background, uh, if China was uh, seriously saber rattling with Russia, then of course Russia's energies would have to be on that. But in the broader sense, I think that China may not welcome this, but it doesn't have any huge uh, geopolitical interest in the region. But I think China's, um, you know, remains a regional power with some soft power extending internationally. And it's going to take some time before it is able to extend its power in a real global sense in the way that the United States does. Russia's relations with China are, I would think, largely cordial. You know, there doesn't appear to me to be a Russia-China axis developing, notwithstanding some of the propaganda or the dubious geopolitical analyses that we've seen in the Anglophone media. When it comes to Putin's broader aims, so there's a range of opinion when it comes to just how ambitious the geostrategic goals are. So at the most kind of maximalist end, his comment that the demise of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the century is often quoted by those who propose that he aims at continual expansion and, and threatens all of Eastern Europe. Though, of course, less often quoted are the, are the following lines where he stated that anyone who doesn't regret the passing of the Soviet Union has no heart. Anyone who wants it restored has no brains. On the other hand, there are those who view Russia's actions as essentially reactive and, and more rooted in, in a response to NATO's expansion into Eastern Europe. What, what's your opinion? Just, just how much do you think Putin seeks to transform the security environment in Europe? My view is that Putin's approach to foreign policy is largely opportunistic and largely cynical, uh, which is to say he does have certain underlying axioms uh, with regard to the centralized unity of the Russian state, with regard to the need for Russia to exercise some authority in the world and to be taken seriously and treated with respect. And I think it's a sort of almost a gangster's mentality which is, I guess, pretty much the norm when it comes to states. But, you know, I don't think that there's an underlying drive towards relentless expansion. I haven't seen any evidence for that. And I think that there's a kind of paranoia about Russia in world affairs today that we have to be steer well clear of. Uh, we've seen Russia blamed for Hillary losing the election. We've seen Russia blamed for the energy crisis. We've seen Russia blamed for uh, subventions in France uh, or in sort of African states causing difficulties for the French military forces and so on. For example, in Mali, Russia gets blamed for a great deal. And often these accusations are based on a certain nub of reality, insofar as Russian cyber warfare forces did intervene in the US elections, but didn't probably have much effect, insofar as uh, Russian uh, state power, dark money, etc., does support far-right forces in Europe, but probably not to any great effect, and so on and so on. You know, there's, there's a sense in which... What's happening is a mirror image of what's happening within Russia, you know, where Russia basically exaggerates the threats to it and perceives a spurious coherence between different types of threat, you know, domestic threats and international threats, um, so that you end up with a kind of almost conspiratorial 
point of view. Well, that's the way in which Russia has been viewed uh, internationally. It's a it's a not very powerful mid-level state, which, you know, it has some uh, influence in Europe because of uh, its energy resources. But beyond that, I think that uh, there's a, a real danger that the coherence of Russian policy and its uh, power projections will be significantly overstated. There is also a tradition wherein particularly in, in foreign policy literature and securitarian think tanks and so on, when they talk about Russia, they tend to talk about it as if it's got some great power hunger deep in its genes, going back to the invasion of the Mongol, Mongols or something like that. And you often hear that uh, Putin is reviving the USSR, and what is meant by this is that the USSR, at its essence, was great russia you know it, it was an empire um yes i mean there's and, that kind of racist narrative where you know russians need and like a strong leader as well that's that's also part of that oh yeah uh, and you can see that in this um a kind of quasi orientalism and it doesn't really seem to me to successfully explain anything rather what it does is allow one to avoid having to explain things because if russia doesn't go to war well the empire is in abeyance, it's dormant, etc. If it does go to war, well, there you go, you see, it just goes to prove it was happening all along. Uh, so I'm very sceptical of that. But I, I would also be cautious about any argument that Russia's behavior is purely reactive. It's not purely reactive. It actively attempts to shape the situation. It actively intervenes in crises, crises which it doesn't create so it didn't create the syrian civil war but it intervened and it deepened its relationship with a core dictatorship in the middle east as a result that was a very important foreign policy game again for russia and of course it defeated um an emerging or helped defeat an emerging jihadist force which uh, could have been quite dangerous for russia or in some of its border states okay um it didn't create the euromedan crisis or the divisions within ukraine but it did intervene it did capitalize on it to annex crimea and to create the crisis in donetsk and luhansk and of course it didn't start war with georgia but it uh, capitalized on it and so on and so on so it, it's not as if it's relentlessly expanding, but where opportunities presented, it takes advantage of them. In this case, this is the one example I can think of where essentially you could have said, this is not like an opportunity has just been presented to Russia. Rather, Russia is trying to hasten something into being. It's jumping the gun strategically. And I, I hate to sound cynical, you know, like talking in these real politic terms. Obviously, it's terrible what Russia is doing. But even within its own cynical terms, it is clearly jumping the gun and setting itself up for potentially quite a protracted and bloody uh, situation, which could actually end up... I mean, you, you mentioned the possibility of it rebounding badly with Russian public opinion. In the short run, perhaps no. But if this war were to go on for any long period of time, in the long run, it uh, that could, I mean, even in uh, the medium term, that could change very quickly. So amongst the justifications that Putin has given for the invasion is this incredibly inflammatory claim that one of the aims is the denazification of the country. And this refers to the existence of far-right Ukrainian militias, most notoriously the Azov Battalion, 
which has its roots in the 2014 conflict and which was subsequently integrated into the Ukrainian National Guard. In liberal circles, there's perhaps a a reluctance to discuss the Ukrainian far right and and its degree of support within the Ukrainian state because it doesn't seem particularly helpful to be parroting Moscow talking points. It's also pointed out rightly that in electoral terms, the Ukrainian far right have done quite poorly. On the other hand, on the the left outside of Ukraine, there's a a range of opinion. Uh, Some people will acknowledge that the Ukrainian far right is a real and dangerous force, but it's not overwhelmingly dominant. But then there are those who effectively endorse Russian claims about the scale of far-right penetration of the state. For instance, just the other day, in a recent tweet, the writer and broadcaster John Pilger wrote, the US is sending millions of dollars worth of arms to Europe's only openly neo-Nazi infested country, while Britain trains Ukraine's neo-Nazi infested National Guard and the regime lays siege to Russian-speaking Donbass. What would your response be to that kind of comment and, and just how big a factor is the Ukrainian far right in this situation, do you think? You know, I've been thinking about this uh, and particularly the way in which a certain fraction of the left has reacted to Russia's aggression in Ukraine. I think that there is a certain tendency that does not perceive the West, as it were, to be in decline, does not agree with the analysis that the US is losing ground and that Russia's assertions are in part a reflection of how it is able to take the initiative a bit more than it would have been uh, in the past. The worry, I think, from people who take this stance is that essentially, if we are too critical of Russia, we're going to allow the propagandists of Western imperialism to set the tone and to justify and remoralize their own their own sort of imperialist proclivities. I don't agree with what John Pilger said, not because there isn't a substantial far right in Ukraine. Um, and it's not a question of how much popular support they have. They are well organized, they're armed, and they do have links to the state. They have been incorporated into various state activities. This is not unknown, by the way. Throughout the Cold War, for example, the US, uh, you know, it was never dominated by Nazis, but it had close links with various Nazi and far-right and fascist political forces. And some of that was informal through conservative networks, and some of that was through intelligence, and some of that was through money. And essentially, you know, the global far right benefited immensely from a a sort of missionary project on the part of U.S. imperialism. So uh, this is not a surprise. Okay, the use of the far right, especially since the far right militias tend to be very well armed, is just to be expected. And in the context of Ukraine, the, the, the political forces dominating Donetsk and Luhansk it also include far-right forces. Again, I don't want to overstate that, but it, these are authoritarian enclaves where politicians can be very swiftly disappeared. And, you know, it's a very surreal situation where uh, people are locked up for relatively minor thought crimes and others disappear or turn up dead, murdered. And, you know, these little statelets have long been dominated by the delegates of Russian state power. And, you know, the the organizing forces behind the sort of separatist movement in Donetsk and Luhansk include quite significant far-right forces. Now, Russia is not unknown for its association with the far-right in the United States uh, and in parts of Europe. 
and it's not unknown for its support for dictatorships that you could characterize as being in some sense on the far right. You could call Assad in some sense uh, as a sort of quasi-fascist leader. Russia uh, is not innocent in this respect. So I think the point is to say that if we're going to start romanticizing and lionizing the heroes of Ukrainian nationalism and start being sentimental about Kiev, then of course it makes absolute sense to say, no, 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 these are the people who basically their their project is a minoritarian one affiliated with a minority of Ukrainian oligarchs and capitalists. Um, and they these are the people who have used Nazis and far-right political forces, violent far-right political forces, to get what they want. And they have become more authoritarian in themselves. Look at the Zelensky government, you know, starts out as a government with 70% popular support, promising to end the war with Russia, promising to protect the democratic system, and ends up becoming more authoritarian than his predecessor. So it's not just about the far-right political forces, and it's not just about uh, this um, inflated talk of Nazi-infested country and so on. It's also about the general drift towards authoritarianism as a result of the divisions uh, within Ukraine, which reflect the failure of a nation-building project. The fact that nobody was able to impose a hegemonic vision of what Ukraine is as a nation, and of course the anti-communist vision of Ukrainian nationalism is unable to be hegemonic, particularly unable to apply to the largely pro-Russian parts of the east of Ukraine, which also happen to be the parts of Ukraine which have historically been most industrialized and high growth. So this is a situation where authoritarianism is a highly likely outcome and where the profusion and growth and proliferation of various far-right tendencies is also a highly likely outcome. When it comes to Russia's view of, of Ukraine's relations with the West, the discussion primarily tends to focus on, on security and the question of NATO. But how big a factor do you think is economics and, and perhaps Russian fear that ex-Soviet states will be increasingly integrated into the economy of, of Western Europe at the expense of, of links with Russia? Uh, and of course, Russia has been pushing the uh, Eurasian Economic Union as its alternative to the EU. Yeah, I mean, that's that's obviously crucial. But that wouldn't lead you into a war, not by itself. But yes, I mean, the offer to a faction of the Ukrainian oligarchy to essentially sign up to a free trade treaty in which it's a, I don't like using this language, but you could say it's a quasi-colonial arrangement, okay? Um, we're not living in colonial times, but we understand what is meant by this. There is a sense in which the political framework and underlying constitution governing Europe's economy um, is inaccessible to a society or a state that joins on the terms that uh, Ukraine was invited to join, you know, as a sort of um, a bilateral treaty in which Ukraine would become a labor market, a market for European consumer goods, but wouldn't have any uh, direct political say or control over the structures with which they're relating um, and would just essentially be profoundly exploited by European capital, but not much more than that. Um, so there is that. And on the other hand, of course, uh, Russian capital has its interests, uh, particularly in the industry-heavy parts of eastern Ukraine. But as I say, 
there there are ways of defending those interests if you think about it historically that don't involve going to war this has to be understood as it's mediated through of course the difficulties of nation building and the divisions and civil war within ukraine and russia's role in that and the failure of the diplomatic process the minsk protocols which uh, you know, they, these are often brought up in Russia's defense. And from a certain point of view, you can see why that is the case. The Minsk protocols were signed in 2015, Minsk II, and they have not been implemented. They've been resisted by Ukrainian nationalists. Of course, what um, the Russia's defenders miss out is that these protocols are the result of the overwhelming defeat inflicted on Ukrainian military forces by Russian military forces. So, you know, the protocols were not exactly a representation of the fair balance of forces within Ukraine. They represented Russian military superiority. It's not surprising that they want the Minsk protocols to be implemented, in other words. So, um, you know, th- this is a problem of economics mediated through a problem of uh, political hegemony, mediated through the sort of military and geoeconomic competition with NATO powers and more generally the West as it's called which is in turn all mediated and filtered through the political crisis within Russia and the difficulties that Putin is having maintaining order domestically without resort to quite brutal levels of crackdown uh, involving the National Guard and FSB agents and you know uh, various plainclothes cops rounding up demonstrators and brutalizing them as uh, as Althusserians would say, it's a massively overdetermined crisis, and the question is, I guess that we're trying to work out here is what is the dominant contradiction, what is the main contradiction that is p- precipitating this, and I think it's political rather than economic. Joe Biden has, of course, uh, ruled out direct U.S. military involvement. Do you think there's any reason to doubt that the U.S. will stick to that position, given that Biden uh, may over time come under uh, increasing pressure from more hawkish elements in in U.S. politics and the U.S. security establishment? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, because Biden traditionally was a hawk um, and his withdrawal from uh, Afghanistan was to uh, to that extent quite out of character. But I think the U.S. has fundamental problems, which multiple commitments overseas and the budgets that come with them and the political attention that they require could be quite uh, dangerous uh, for the Biden administration. I mean, it's already got enough to deal with domestically. And I think the Pentagon probably doesn't want a direct military engagement. So... I certainly, I, I would be surprised if, if there weren't uh, some forms of indirect intervention. It would not surprise me to see arms being funneled into Ukraine to support uh, nationalist militias. And it wouldn't surprise me, by the way, if the far right became much more influential in that context, for, for obvious reasons. Um, but Biden, he's got a real problem here. If he starts to uh, intervene... Uh, in a situation like the Ukraine, then people will say, well, why did you pull out of Afghanistan? The United States uh, certainly had an interest in what was happening in Afghanistan. Um, Are you saying that Afghanistan is less important than Ukraine? So I think that um, even if he wanted to intervene in Ukraine, which I don't think he does, and I don't think the Pentagon does, 
that, that he would have that option. I think it wouldn't make any sense. I think the neoconservatives are trying to uh, give themselves uh, a, a new lease of moral legitimacy coming out of their sort of uh, never-Trump moment. But I don't think it's going to work. I, I just think we're in a different situation now. U.S. Uh, power is not what it was. You could argue that it peaked circa 2000, and since then has been slowly but discernibly declining on a number of fronts. It remains overwhelmingly the dominant world power, but these wars have not been helpful. Is there a possibility that a, a counterposition to that would be that it, it may be declining in, in terms of being the dominant economic force in the world, but it's still militarily extraordinarily uh, dominant, and that that might in fact have the opposite consequence of leading the US to relying more on its military strength? That hasn't been the pattern thus far, uh, at least, you know, I mean, I, I think Obama pioneered a kind of streamlined, low-cost, uh, qu- quite brutal form of uh, global strategy, which would involve the use of drones, for example, where you can have a very targeted form of violence that advances determinate U.S. objectives without having the expense of having boots on the ground. So I think that there's a case for saying that Biden's certainly not going to be more aggressive than the Obama administration was. They didn't want boots on the ground in Libya where they did intervene. They didn't want boots on the ground in Syria where they didn't uh, directly intervene. And I think that they'd be very wary of another forever war. They probably are much more worried by China than they are by Russia. I think that it's certainly very clear from Biden's actions and from that of the Obama administration that he was vice president in, that the goal uh, and design of uh, future foreign policy will probably be to encircle China, to limit its ability to build up its trading networks, and to, you know, build up US authority and uh, corporate presence within Southeast Asia and across the, the south of Asia in such a way as to basically neutralize the growth of Chinese influence. I I think that's uh, most likely what the priority is going to be, rather than a a direct military engagement that that doesn't do anything other than drain U.S. political capacities and resources. And potentially, you know, I mean, if you think about this in the context of Afghanistan, at one stage... Russia was essentially lured into a trap. As uh, Brzezinski pointed out, they were drawn into a quagmire wherein they bled resources uh, in a war that they couldn't win for about a decade. And this was partly by the design of the United States. I mean, obviously, it wasn't just that. But essentially, because Russia was wasting its energy and its time here, the United States could do the bare minimum, which was channel funds and arms to the jihadist movement in concert with Saudi Arabia and Pakistani secret police. Okay, the US was drawn into a a trap in Afghanistan uh, where they spent 20 years fighting a war which eventually it turned out they couldn't win. And where, again, Russia didn't even have to do anything. They didn't have to lift a finger to watch uh, an old rival bleed resources and uh, waste political capacity for a couple of decades. If Russia is now going to uh, invade Ukraine and potentially get embroiled in a civil war, because the, the prior political situation here is one of Ukrainian civil war, 
And uh, if they find themselves up against armed civil opponents, perhaps armed by NATO powers, that's that's always a possibility, then there's no, no need for any rival to intervene directly. Um, I think they can just stoke the war from afar. And that's what I would be far more worried about, actually. I'd be worried about the war being prolonged by the direct or indirect subventions of US imperialism, NATO powers, and so on, arms arriving in large quantities, some highly destructive weaponry making its way there, resulting in a civil war that is justified as an offensive against Russia, but that ultimately involves the suppression of a large part of the Ukrainian population, whose whose victimization at the hands of um, the Kiev authorities was not totally made up and was part of the reason why they gravitated towards Russian power in the first place. So I think that this is what we're looking at more than the potential for a hot war. But the thing is, it's also um, an unpredictable situation, an unstable situation, and uh, I don't want to overstate the basic rationality and coherent self-interest of uh, Western states either. I think that they are given to a degree of paranoia and sanctimony and projection of their own, let's say, bloody impulses towards rivals. And that could justify them um, in doing something really, really stupid here. So a degree of vigilance on the part of the anti-war left in this country and in other countries uh, is called for here. And we certainly mustn't allow the warmongers to try and use this situation to provoke us into further actions. I think I have to say, though, uh, also more fundamentally, there is a part of the sort of decent left, you know, the the tough on Putin left. I don't want to name names, but the kinds of people who are saying what we need to do is to have sanctions and ruthlessly condemn Putin's aggression. I would just say this. We can organize in support of Ukrainian civil society, particularly the left and democratic elements. We can organize transnational solidarity as much as we can. Uh, we can condemn what Russia's doing. But I don't particularly feel uh, uh, that it would be appropriate for me to call for sanctions uh, or any other action by people who I would regard as enemies uh, just as much as Putin. I remember how recently and how frequently I've had to march against the murder being carried out by people in Downing Street um, and in the White House. Uh, I'm not calling for them to implement sanctions. I mean, even if I thought that they would work, which they won't, because they're already taken account of. So I think that we have to be very careful to remain independent, politically independent. And I guess that, to some extent, is rooted in a certain old-fashioned Trotskyist view that the working class should retain its political independence of uh, any particular state that claims uh, its uh, loyalty. I think we should retain our independence of both Russia and the United States, and of course, our own state, uh, the, the United Kingdom. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. If you've been enjoying PTO, please consider rating the show on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast application you use. And if you found this episode interesting and useful, it would be great if you could share it on your social media. It really does help bring the show to new listeners. Thanks for listening and for supporting PTO. I'll be back with the regular show soon.